If you're not unlocking the full value of your SaaS, what are you doing? There is no denying it. SaaS is mission critical to your company's growth and success. And as the number two operating expense for most organizations, it's your biggest opportunity to save money and drive efficiency. The time is now to do something about it. Please take this as your personal invitation to join me and your fellow IT, SAM, finance, and procurement leaders at SASME on May 16th, 2023. SASME is the industry's only dedicated SaaS management event where you can sharpen your skills, hear from your peers, and learn how to unlock value and responsible business growth through smarter SaaS management. It's virtual, it's free, and it's going to knock your socks off. Register today at sasme.com. That's S-A-A-S me.com. It's time to get your sassing gear. Are you with me? You really have to lead with empathy when it comes yeah. to M&A because everybody's like, okay, I'm working for this company. It's a great company. Everybody wants to go to work. Everybody wants to do well. And then all of a sudden, oh no, what I thought I was doing for the next X number of years, my career journey, my plans, my healthcare, my everything is suddenly completely different at the flick of a switch. Hello, hello, and welcome to SaaS Me Unfiltered, the SaaS management podcast. The show with give it to you straight, real life advice from pros knee deep in SaaS every single day. SaaS management superheroes just like you. Welcome to another episode of SaaS Me Unfiltered with your two favorite co-hosts, me, Ashley Hickman, and Corey Wheeler. So today we are back with our friend and global SAM leader, Jason Owens from Salesforce. So first and foremost, Jason, we're so excited to have you join us again. This is actually a two-part episode. So in the last episode, we covered how software asset management helps unlock value and drive transformation within the business. So today, we're going to be kind of learning a little bit more, digging in. You have a fairly mature process, Jason, around your business technology apps. So if we consider the growth of SAM, especially in the SaaS space, and there are a lot of apps in use at Salesforce today... I want to dig in a little bit. How do you define the business technology strategy? What does that look like for everything that lives outside of biz tech? Or are you hands-off completely with those applications? So one of the things, we have a new CIO, and I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, Juan Perez has joined from UPS, and we've had some really outstanding conversations internally as a business technology organization. Of what does it mean? What does citizen-managed application development or application use look like. I think there's a shift in industry to move away from calling that shadow IT and to look at the democratization of applications and application Mm -hmm. access and say, hey, if it doesn't meet a criteria that we set to be an enterprise application, an enterprise managed application, then we want to help teach you how to properly manage it so that it's secure and performant Mm -hmm. and you're not going to cause an outage or an issue or have data loss. Right. And I think that that's where Joe Ryder and I had this awesome brainstorm session almost three years ago where we talked about like, Hey, we're never like just talking brass tacks again. We're never going to get the funding to have a true like EMEA style 
governance and compliance software asset management program that manages every application inception to deprecation across the entire enterprise. That's never going to happen. However, knowing that we're not going to be there, what can we do to influence other business units to say, hey, you have these applications in your environment. What if we taught you or helped you standardize, centralize your contracts, realize cost savings, and then stand up an application management or an application operations team within your line of business that's going to drive cost savings, discrete cost savings to your bottom line in the line of business. Sure. Kind of a, we called it at the time jokingly, a like a cohort of software asset management teams. And it's crazy that like stuff you just throw on a whiteboard a couple of years is coming to fruition because we now have two lines of business where mm-hmm. they've come to us and said, hey, we see you're doing this. And we're like, the first thing they ask is like, can you just do everything for us? I said, well, if you give me the headcount, I can't. Mm-hmm. 100%, full stop. I'll do it for you. But they're like, ah, we can't do that. It's hard to get headcount. I'm like, cool. So we'll teach you. And so we have through sales operations with some of our TMP friends, we have been able to help them stand up teams that are in effect software asset management teams right. managing license distribution governance and the basically the life cycle of their line of business applications that wouldn't meet that threshold, the rise to an enterprise managed application. And what it does is it, it kind of rising tide lifts all boats, but yep. everybody starts to get a little more aware of what the software asset management portfolio and perspective and value drivers are. And as soon as somebody sees a six or seven figure cost savings, they're like, oh, let's do more of that. Let's tell other people about that. And so yeah. suddenly you have, even if it's not acknowledged as pure software asset management, it is an increased governance of particularly SaaS software applications that is driving a reinvestment value into our business. Yeah. I think that's much more progressive than you probably give yourself credit for. It's Um, funny you say that because we go to industry conferences and we're like, oh man, it's so terrible. We have all these fires. We can't. And Mm -hmm. somebody looks at me and goes, your CIO actually talks about asset management or you have VPs that are that even know what software asset management is. They're like, man, I wish somebody would talk about software yeah. asset management. And I'm like, oh, like, it's yes. like you kind of like forget that they're just by being like being fortunate enough to be at Salesforce that we're kind of mm-hmm. in that like upper quartile. And we like just lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah, I think it's historically software asset management as a practice. And I think I can speak from this because I you know, <laughs> formerly was in procurement, which is very similar, but it's, it's really measured historically has been measured on risk mitigation of, you know, fear of audits. So right. almost like a transactional org that they're going to go fight against those audits and they're going to do license positions and, you know, get us out of an invoice. That's a seven figure invoice that just happened to land on our desk because we had and over- we do some of that. Right. Sure. And we do it really well, but that's not what our true value right. of the organization is. So let me ask this. As you think about your true value of your organization, I've heard cost savings. I've heard generating ROI to be a self-funded organization, but it's not just that. So what are those KPIs that you measure your organization by? And even maybe backing up from that just a half beat is what are the big rocks? What are the goals of your program at the highest level? It's funny you mentioned the big rocks because both Juan and Andy have used a phrase 
lately that has kind of struck a, a chord with my team and I. It's that the a low tide reveals the stones, reveals the rocks, right? Like in good times when you have the high tide and the water's high, like, all right, we're not going to run aground on any of this stuff. But when the tide is lower and you get into a little tougher time, it's like, what are those big rocks? Okay, what is it that we... If we go a year out and we look back at today and say, man, I wish I had done that thing a year ago today because now I have to do it. What are those things? Mm -hmm. And so from a KPI perspective, we really show our value through cost avoidance and cost savings, as well as we track reinvestment or cost avoidance through software reclaims. We track that on a granular per seat level, but we're really... And this is where like, I don't have a good metric today. And I, mm-hmm. we're talking through on the team, like, how do we track that? Like, what is that next generation KPI that shows the value to the C-suite, but is also easily understood by those in and outside of SAM? And I don't mm-hmm. have a good answer today, but I want to figure out what one is. I do know that like... Personally, one of the things I'm most proud of is not the dollars we've saved. It's not Mm -hmm. defending an audit or fighting off an invoice. It's the fact that three people from our program are now at other Mm -hmm. awesome companies leading their own SAM programs or portions of a SAM program, right? And to me, that is like proof in the pudding. Like Mm -hmm. if you want a key metric, it's that our leaders from our SAM program are going elsewhere in the industry and making a huge difference for the companies at which they go to, right? That's kind of a proof in the pudding KPI for me. It's that people are going and really delivering and unlocking value across multiple industries. Yeah, super cool. And I I know those folks that you're talking about and they've been amazing to work with. I want to ask a question around M&A, right? Mergers and acquisitions. (laughs) Salesforce is incredibly acquisitive. I had the good fortune of going through an acquisition, being part of an acquisition by Salesforce as well. And software as a service really comes into focus during M&A activities. And how maybe talk a little bit about that, but what is the importance of managing M&A? And this is really how we first started working together and engaging with Salesforce was around that specific use case. Totally. How, how does how does Salesforce handle M and A today in your world around software? Is there a dedicated function? Maybe talk a little bit about M and A at Salesforce today because it's massive. Yeah, it is. It's massive. I, last I saw, and I've I actually quit counting, but a couple of years ago, at some point, Salesforce had acquired eighty three or eighty six discrete entities, and it that was pre Slack. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only higher than that now. It's part of our business motion, and I don't mean that just from a Salesforce as a business. And leaders talking uh, at investor relations events, right? I mean that we have to, as part of our day-to-day jobs, consider M&A activity. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we have a discrete M&A function. Most of the lines of businesses do. But in SAM, because of the nature of how do we integrate both the contracts directly working with the sourcing partners, but also all of the vagaries of working through SaaS account integration, we have dedicated, like I said, Martin Brophy on my team is dedicated to both onboarding and Mm M&A. And we name M&A as a function within our space and say, look, this is a thing. Salesforce is never going to just stop acquiring companies. right? So we can't bury our head in the sand. We have to deliver processes and we have to deliver procedure and we have to integrate with 
the BTMA organization to deliver and set up ease of integration for our acquired team members. And one of the things that we have to lead with in that space is empathy. M&A is incredibly difficult for the people who are acquired. And I, I did not join Exact Target. I was hired by Salesforce mm-hmm. right after that mm-hmm. acquisition. But I came into this space where everyone that I worked with was part of the acquisition. And then I had the good fortune to move to Boston for a couple of years and help with the demandware integration right. before moving back and taking this role in Indianapolis. And you really have to lead with empathy when it comes yeah. to M&A because everybody's like, okay, I'm working for this company. It's a great company. Everybody wants to go to work. Everybody wants to do well. And then all of a sudden, oh no, what I thought I was doing for the next X number of years, my career journey, my plans, my healthcare, my everything is suddenly completely different at the flick of a switch at the end of a business day when it gets reported to the street, right? And so it's really difficult when you say, okay, like we have these standards, guess what? You have to move to these standards. Yeah. And so we have our team, you know, Martin and Chris, and they're really skilled at having those conversations saying, hey, I know that you have a, you really like this tool. You want to keep using it and we'll help you get over to whatever the new platform is, right? And in some cases, particularly companies that are cloud native, they have a lot of the same tools Mm -hmm. in use. And so that makes ease of transition a little bit easier because they're just, it's all about org integration Mm -hmm. at that point. And we've actually seen some tools that were heavily in use at some acquisitions where we said, ooh, this is actually really good. They have good terms. What does that look like for our standardization internally? And we've pivoted to tools that were heavily in use at acquisitions because of the fact that it was advantageous to the business. It just comes down to being empathetic and and being mindful and knowing that everybody wants to do a good job. Nobody gets up, comes to work and says, I'm going to be terrible today. Right. And (laughs) I mean, maybe some people do, but they're not going to be there very long. But for the most part, everybody's just trying to do their job. And Mm -hmm. that is for me, the key takeaway in M&A is empathy. We can figure out all the commercials, all the terms, all the seats, all that stuff that we do that anyway, but bringing empathy to the table in M&A, that's where we really drive, you know, that's when we've had really good integrations and really good journeys for companies that have been acquired for folding them into the portfolio. Mm -hmm. It's because we started with empathy. Are you blown away by the amazing work our SaaS Me Unfiltered guests are doing? Now you can join them at SaaS Me, the industry's only SaaS management event. Hear from the experts, discover trends, and learn from the pros knee-deep in this shit every single day. Register today at sasme.com. That's S-A-A-S-M-E dot com. How do you balance empathy with speed, right? You've got to be delivering on tight timeframes. You've got renewals that you've got a co-term. You've got orgs that you've got to bring together. So everybody is under a deadline. So how do you balance the two? So really, that just comes down to prioritization. We work with the M&A team. We take the Zylo data. We comb through credit card and finance and we figure out, all right, what are the contract dates? And we basically take a matrix view of contract dates out into the future plus spend 
plus the, you know, there's a third thing there. It's not just how much you're spending on the mm-hmm. platform, but what is the lift and the effort to transition that either to the correlated business platform at Salesforce or to retrain individuals to move them over to a new platform. And sometimes it's not cost effective to do that integration in the first year. And we say, all right, we're going to set a roadmap target for the second renewal that we want to move over. And like, again, I, I will, I will say this is something that we continue to improve on and we're iterating on and we get better with every deal. And, you know, mm-hmm. Ashley Brown and Sam Wingo and Leslie Kellner over at M&A have been great partners and, you know, we use that Xylo data to help drive that roadmap. Yeah. And it's not the same every time. It's like we have playbooks, but our playbooks mm-hmm. have to be super flexible just because not every M&A is the same. First, from a size perspective, mm-hmm. line of business, what they do, there's all these just stuff that yeah. you have mm-hmm. to figure out. And it's kind of one of those things that's as much art as it is science. Cause it's not just what are the contract terms and dates, but it's like, what does this look like from an effort and an initiative perspective to get this stuff across the line? That's really helpful insight, Jason, especially around MA, like the need for empathy, but of course, balancing that with prioritization. So what is the one thing for people who are either beginning your journey today, big proponent of people entering in, you know, the software asset management space, which I love. What is one thing for, for SaaS managers, for people who are in this space, new to this space? What is the one thing that you would recommend people maybe stop or start doing? So I think the number one thing that every software asset manager should start doing mm-hmm. is talking to the people that are using your software. And I don't just mean like the person at the top of the rec who signs off on it, mm-hmm. but go and understand who's using the software. Why are they using it? What value does it drive for them? And then how can you use that insight and that conversation, that relationship that you build with them to drive better value across the rest of your portfolio? That has done wonders for our team where we said, all right, somebody's coming to us and asking for this title. Like, what's going on here? Let's go, let's dig into this a little bit more and go say, hey, can I sit in on one of your calls and understand Mm -hmm. how you're using this tool? And then say, oh, wow, they're using it in a way that doesn't even really meet the Captera definition of that tool. So Mm -hmm. that's why we didn't understand why they wanted to use it for that way. And like standardized on some tools that just kind of bubbled up to us in that way. And being open to listening to customers when they have some new tool or new software, a new title that they say, hey, this is driving value for us and here's why, rather than kind of being the wall of no and saying, Mm -hmm. no, it doesn't meet our stuff. Like It's really that tension between standardization and innovation that you have to find a happy medium on. And I think software asset managers that do that will have unlimited career horizons as we go forward in the next 20 years. I love that. Going back to like, just talk to people, right? Like find out. Just talk to people. (laughs) Yeah. Have a conversation. But yeah, it really does go down to use case requirements and just understanding, right? Having those conversations. And that's ultimately going to lead to your point, like the customers, your, your team members that you're serving, like making them the most successful that they need to be as well as your team long-term. Totally. Well, I think it's time to, to start to wind down. But before we do that, I want to close this out in a very familiar way. We love to do a little bit of rapid fire at the end of every one of our episodes. So Jason, you are now officially on the hot seat. 
Uh, So we're going to ask just a few questions. You give us your off-the-cuff response, one word, a sentence, whatever you want to do, but would love to get your thoughts. Okay, ready? Cool. All right. What is your best or favorite Indy 500 memory? The number one best. It wasn't sitting in turn three watching Alexander Rossi go by out of gas, which was pretty cool. It was the year Simon Pagino won, and it was my son's first Indy 500. And every year we get the newspaper and we cut it up and everybody gets uh, five bucks and pulls a driver and he pulled Pagano and to see him root and realize that his driver won and he's hooked on IndyCar since that day to know Ah. that like that little like, okay, we're just the little traditions that everybody has around the 500. And then that just kind of cemented for him. He still talks about it to this day. He's got, Pagano die cast. And he's like, dad, remember <laughs> like anytime we see him, he's like, dad, remember? <laughs> oh. go, I remember. Next up your uh, bucket list vacation spot for yourself, for your family. I think our f- bucket list family vacation spot is a uh, Northern Georgia, like the Clayton oh, yeah. uh, area. We went there for the first time last year and absolutely loved it, particularly on fall break. It was great. We're looking to try and go back again soon as a family trip for mm-hmm. Personal, my bucket list vacation is to do the 24 hours of Le Mans. We've talked about that. We're in the early stages of planning to make it next year, which will be the 100th anniversary of the first Le Mans, which will be pretty cool. And try and make it into kind of like, because bucket list for my wife and I is anywhere in Italy. And so we're going to try and do a a kind of a two-week European vacation where we start in London and do the channel and then do Le Mans and then finish up through like Switzerland and and Northern Italy. So we're really looking forward to that trip of a lifetime. Okay. I'm going to have to help you here because I think I know the answer to your question, but I'd love to know work and personal again, your favorite SaaS application and Zylo, you're not allowed to say Zylo. I'm going to take that away from you because I know that's where it was going. So outside of that, your favorite work and personal SaaS apps. My favorite work SaaS app, and this is not like the hometown cooking, is <laughs> Slack. It it sure. really has been transformative yeah. for mm-hmm. how we've run our business. You know, having a team that runs twenty four by five, follow the sun, and we have you know we have app, like we have little widgets set up in our channels that everybody can do a stand up check in every day, so everybody knows what everybody's working on, and we don't have to have face to face like. Oh, let's all hop on a call, but mm-hmm. you know, somebody it's 7 p.m. and somebody it's 5 a.m. No, we can have that mm-hmm. um, follow the sun information exchange in a way that's really conducive to everybody still yeah. maintaining barriers and boundaries between their personal life and, the, and their work. Because at the end of the day, work's great, right? Like I love coming to work, but I, I love my family more, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so that's what it's about. So that's from a work perspective. That's what about. Man, that's a really tough one for a personal. I mean, it could uh, be an app on your phone, really anything. So it's not SaaS. So I can't say iRacing because it's uh, installed locally on, on okay. your computer. So that, that doesn't really count. <laughs> I'm probably going to go with Discord, you right. know, for again, kind of like getting back to like one of my hobbies is iRacing. I used to, before I had a son, I raced uh, oval uh, dirt go-karts uh, as a um, hobby. It's a little more frowned upon to race when you have a kid. And uh, my wife didn't love it when I did it anyway. So <laughs> I love being able to be home and racing. And I've like, built some great friendships over Discord with fellow iRacers. And sure. uh, 
so much so that we had a 25 person get together at the Indy 500 this year of people that had never met before in person. Uh, mm-hmm. And we just all met at the race around a shared passion, which was really cool. So that is. I'll go with discord. Right. Awesome. And uh, top five uh, things that you're listening to or reading or people should check out any reps. So two things that are top of mind for me, you know, for Father's Day last week and had this awesome opportunity with my brothers and our dad to uh, down to Cincinnati to Steely Dan concert because that's my dad's favorite band. So um, we had the chance to go do that, which was really cool. So I'm kind of like stuck on a Pandora Steely Dan playlist right now. You from a vinyl. I'm a big vinyl guy. I've got my record player right there over my left shoulder and tend to, to track an album or two every day. Right now, the album that I can't stop playing, I play it a couple times a week, is Tedeschi Trucks and Trey Anastasio revisited the Layla album from Derek and the Dominoes and basically did front to back. It's three LPs. It's absolutely fantastic. And I highly recommend it if you're either a Clapton, Derek and Dominoes, Allman Brothers, or even a Tedeschi Trucks fan. So that's kind of where I'm at from a musical perspective. I'm kind of stuck on my books right now. Like yeah. I'm in the middle of, uh, I tend to like really enjoy World War II naval history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm in the middle of a, the second book of a three volume series of the Pacific Naval War that's really good by Ian Toll. Oh, so if you yeah. like naval history, check that out. And other than that, it's kind of like that plus IndyCar racing and F1 on TV. Yeah. And that's kind of the extent of my media. Oh, I'll add one more. We just finished up Obi-Wan, my son and I, mm-hmm. and it was fantastic. No spoilers, but the last episode was great. Awesome. All right. I'll put that on the list. <laughs> well, Jason, listen, I, you know, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. What I take away from our conversation, your passion around Sam is infectious the way that you set up your program is very progressive. You've got a, a very mature strategy in mind to organize such a global organization, 75,000 person company. What you're doing is on the leading edge of software asset management in the industry. And we work with a lot of software asset management leaders. So kudos to you for being a transformative and progressive leader in such a progressive company. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't I give all the credit to my amazing software asset management team around the world. They're the ones that do the work. I just ask a lot of questions. Without them, I wouldn't be here talking to you. Did you enjoy the episode? Pass it along to your friends. Subscribe to get notifications for the latest episode. Share your favorite takeaways and join the conversation on social media using hashtag SASMeUnfiltered. Unfiltered.